So 1 Samuel chapter 17, that's where we'll be hanging out today. Um, But if you're new with us, let me just, or maybe if you haven't been here for a while, let me get you up to speed on the current series that we're doing. Every summer we've dedicated to preaching a series about how to have better conversations because it's something that we feel is an issue in our society that we've sort of lost our conversational IQ. So we're doing this series on better conversations. And what we said is part of having better conversations is learning to converse about the things of God even when people are not necessarily open to those things because we live in a time where people oftentimes are not open or looking for these conversations. But how do we speak in such a way as to move people to become open to considering the things of God, to considering the gospel of Jesus Christ, to considering the questions of greatest concern? How do we do that? And, and really, the ability to do that is uh, what, we've, what we're calling the art of persuasion. And persuasion is not a dirty word. Um, it's not forceful. It's not heavy-handed. But it seeks to move people to see the world perhaps in another way. And so there's a few keys, and we're, gonna be, we're doing four keys to how to learn to be persuasive in the way we speak about God. And the first thing we said, the first key was being willing to be seen as a fool. Willing to be seen as a fool. If we're not able to do that, it's going to be very hard, particularly in a city like Seattle, to be persuasive in the way we talk. The second thing we said, the second key, was learning to be artfully creative. We can't speak about God in ways that we only understand Him internally. We don't change the truth, but we learn to speak about the truth creatively so that others might come to learn also what God is like in His gospel of redemptive grace. And so then this week, we're coming to the third key. And the third key is the power of confidence. There's something about confidence, not in yourself, but confidence in God's power and His presence that is this third key to the art of persuasive conversation. So our goal here as sort of teammates on this mission to collectively raise the conversational IQ in our city, our goal is to learn to become more confident when we speak about the things of God because they're true And because they are good for anyone to hear, to know, and to trust. So would you pray with me as we speak of confidence? Father God, we thank you that we get to come into this place and worship you today through the singing of song, the studying of scripture, the conversation in community. We pray that today we would be honoring to you in all that we say and do. Thank you for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, why is confidence, why is our confidence so important to the rest of the world? Let me give you a a sports analogy. If you talk to any successful athlete, and you've probably heard this before, the most important thing to them 
The most important thing to their trade is confidence. Have you heard this before? When athletes talk about being in a slump, right, or having an off game, they often talk about their confidence being low. And great athletes know this. Now, believe it or not, back in my day, that's right, Blaine, back in my day, long before you were born, I was something of a decent athlete. I know it's hard to believe. I had quite a bit of success in elementary school tetherball courts. I also had some success in the intramural fields of college. And in between there, I had a little bit of success in the middle school, in the high school, and then even post-college in the CPA basketball leagues, I had a little bit of success. Now, to be completely fair and honest, because that's what we're about here at Sedaris, I peaked in the sixth grade. (laughs) But it was quite a peak. And so I've been coasting down this mountainside for some time now. I may have hit the bottom as of today. I am now officially old. Okay. So as I look back on my own athletic accomplishments, what I realize is that there were two things that that mainly contributed to my success. Uh, The first is what my friend Savannah would call a passion for winning. I had a passion for winning. Now, some of you might call this obnoxious competitivism, but, but Savannah gave me this great phrase. It's a passion for winning. I, have, I had a passion for winning. But the second thing that I believe attributed to the mild success that I had was my confidence. I really did have confidence. And like some of the very greatest athletes in the world, I had this underlying confidence that I could do it, this confidence that gave me courage to try, uh, to try out for the team even. That takes confidence to take the big shot, to give up or to not give up when things got challenging. That takes confidence, okay? And as I thought back on, well, where did my confidence come from? I, I think there were three places that it came from. The first was my past successes. These past victories gave me confidence in the present. I call this historical confidence. The second was my preparation and training. I call this my developmental confidence as I learned and grew in my craft. And then the third uh, was the encouragement of my parents. My parents were always encouraging. In fact, what I realized as I got older was that sometimes they'd even lie to me. And every time I played a basketball game, my dad would come up to me afterward and he would just tell me, I can't believe they called those fouls on you. You never fouled. And so I really believed that I never fouled. <laughs> Until I got older, I was like, Dad, I'm a hacker. What, what were you telling me all those years? But some of it was true. Some of it was, you know, a little bit hyperbolic. But that's what we call motivational confidence. And so confidence is really king in athletics, as it is in much of life. And it's important for us as individuals, for our individual success, but it's also incredibly important for the success of a team. So great athletes have this confidence for themselves that makes them great at their craft, but you also see it moving along those that they play with. 
Always with great athletes, they have this effect on the rest of their team. It's their confidence. I mean, think of Russell Wilson. It's his confidence that draws and moves his team forward through the ups and downs of a season. So it's important for the individual and for others as well. This is how confidence works. And perhaps it's our confidence that will move somebody along with us to consider the things of God so important to realize that our confidence not only helps us, but it helps others. And it often helps them grow. The confidence of another has helped me grow incredibly. I mean, picture yourself. You're probably all there at one point, standing on the edge of the diving board, right? And you have no confidence of your own because you've never jumped off the diving board let alone if you're trying to dive for the first time. But there's always somebody else in that picture, isn't there? A parent standing in the water. And they're giving you their confidence. Now, could you imagine if, if, say, your dad or your mom was standing there, standing in the pool waiting for you to jump and saying to you, well, I'm pretty sure you'll be okay. I can't tell you with, uh, I mean, it's, the percentages are good, but there's a chance. Did you ever hear about this one Olympic diver who hit his head on the diving board? That was crazy. But come on, why don't you jump? No. Uh, it's the, the confidence of our parents that make us grow up, help us to become, come, uh, conquer our fears. It's their confidence that persuades us to do things we wouldn't do otherwise. You've probably also had somebody impose their confidence on you in a difficult time in life. I, I remember often in athletics, a coach telling me, you got, you, you, we can win this game. And I didn't believe it at all, but they were confident. We can win this game. Helped us go back out in the second half. Maybe it was a big test. You can pass this test. I know it's going to be hard, but you can do it. Or maybe you've just been in a storm in life, or a literal storm, and you've had somebody look you in the eye and say, look at me, look at me, it's going to be okay. That's someone else imposing their confidence on you, and we need that in life. We need people with confidence to come around us so that we might go places that we've never been. Confidence is an indispensable commodity to help us reach the best parts of life. And maybe it will be our confidence, our confidence in conversation that will help people reach the best parts of life. Not because they're confident in them, but we are, and it helps them move into this honest consideration of the things of God. Now, fortunately for us, the Bible is chocked full of examples of people with extraordinary confidence, confidence that leads them to personal courage and personal achievement, but also collective courage and collective achievement. And oftentimes, in those moments of confidence, people look at them and think they're foolish. What in the world are you doing? So if you're there with me, let's look at one such story in 1 Samuel 17. 
There's a good chance you've heard this story before, but the Word of God is rich. This is the story of David and Goliath. So let me explain a little bit of the backstory here. What we've got in this picture is two armies that have come up against one another. The army of Israel and the army of the Philistines. And uh, they've come into uh, either side of this valley and in the middle is sort of the battlefield. You probably can recognize this scene. And what would often happen in ancient times is that they would choose a champion from the one army and a champion from the other army. And rather than battling it out, they'll send their champion to sort of fight on behalf of the armies. And so this is what's happening. And so the Philistines send out Goliath, this giant of a man. Scripture says he was nine feet tall. He was known throughout the land as one of the greatest warriors there was, or there were, and and he came out to represent the Philistines. Now, Israel needed to send a champion, but nobody would go for Israel because they looked and they saw the greatest warrior known in that day. So they didn't send anybody. So for 40 days straight, Goliath would come out into the middle of the battlefield and he would say, bring it on. Send me your champion. And for 40 days, nobody came. No one had the confidence to fight him. And Scripture says, Surely he, that's Goliath, has come to defy Israel. And this word defy literally means to mock, to taunt, to disgrace, to shame. And since in these days God... Uh, the gods of the nations were represented by their armies to mock or to taunt, to defy the army of Israel was to defy, to mock the God of Israel. And so Goliath was mocking Yahweh, the Lord of Israel. But still no one had the confidence to come out and defend God's honor. Sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? in our conversations in our world today. People will defy God. They'll mock Him. They'll taunt us. And oftentimes we don't go out and defend His name. I've been there many, many a time because it seems that we don't have the confidence to stand up for God. So no one would come forward for 40 days until one day. Till one day, this young shepherd boy, who was the youngest of eight sons, several of his brothers were at the, at the battle. This youngest of eight sons arrives to the battlefield, and I love this part of the story. He arrives to bring bread and cheese to his brothers. Can you just picture this? Hey guys, I've got some bread and cheese for you. This is how the story starts. You guys can bring me bread and cheese anytime you want, okay? And I will send you out to fight my battles. No, I won't do it. But that's what happened here. So this boy, his name was David, he sees what's happening, and he hears Goliath defying God. And he sees that nobody's going out to defend God. And look at verse 26 in chapter 17. This is what... David says, David asked the men standing near him, 
What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see, David gets it. He's saying he's defying the armies of the living God, which means he's defying, he's disgracing God himself. David's questioning is the right kind of questioning. What is going on here? And so King Saul, who was the king at the time, hears that David has come into the camp, and he asks one of his men to bring David. Now, he knew David already because David had been someone who was a musician. I mean, just like Nolan, probably not as big as Nolan, but just like Nolan, just a musician, and he's known him from that, and he brings David to him, and David says to King Saul, King Saul, I hear nobody will fight. I'll fight. And, and you've got to imagine what King Saul's saying. It's David, you're just a musician. You play the harp. But David convinces him. He persuades him. And he does this by telling a story. Now, it's incredibly important here to understand what David is doing when he's telling a story about how when he was watching the sheep, he kills a lion. David is explaining why he has the confidence to go out. So look in verse 37 with me. David says this, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. See what he's saying? He's not saying, I killed a lion and I've killed a bear. I can kill a Philistine. He's saying, the God who delivered me from the lion and from the bear can kill the Philistine. His confidence is rooted in the God he serves and loves. This is David's historical confidence. He says, God's done this before. He can and he will do it again. He's protected me and he'll protect me again. Now this confidence, I mean, you just got to imagine the scene. David is so confident that he convinces the king of Israel to allow him to fight as his champion. Now you say, well, maybe he just wanted to send David out there to kind of prove a point. No, because the champion represented the whole army. So if David lost this fight with the Philistines, it means that Israel gives up the land that they were fighting over. This is incredibly important. But somehow David, this little musician shepherd boy, convinces the king to allow him to fight as the champion of his army. Incredibly persuasive, the confidence of David. Incredibly persuasive. Not only for himself, but for those around him. And so what happens is David uh, tries to put on Saul's armor and he's walking around in it and he's saying, this is huge, it's so much bigger than what I can carry. And so he takes it off and he says, verse 39, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I cannot go into battle with things that are not my own with things that I have not tested, with things 
that I am unfamiliar with. And so he takes off the armor, which is even crazier, and he says, I'll go with what I normally shepherd in. And he takes his staff, and he takes his sling, and he grabs five rocks out of the crick, and he walks out in front of the Philistine. And it's like, wow, this cat is confident. And as he walks out, Goliath sees him, and he laughs. And this is what he says to him. He says, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Everybody thinks he's a fool. And then like all good trash talkers, you know who you are, like all good trash talkers, he says this, come to me and I will give you your flesh and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. I mean, it sounds like a Sunday morning volleyball situation here. I mean, it's intense, okay? Grace. And then, look what David says. David's no pushover. He says this to the Philistine. He says, you come to me, this is uh, verse 45, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This isn't a boy. And I will give your dead bodies to the host or, or, of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that this is the God of Israel. Do you see his motive? Not that he would gain fame for himself. Not that he would become powerful in his own right, but that the name of the God of Israel might be avenged. And that all, verse 47, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and the spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. That is so beautiful. His confidence is rooted not in himself, not in his strategy, not in his skill, but in the character and the presence of God. Now obviously when we have conversations with friends, (laughs) we don't necessarily want to adopt this exact rhetoric. You might want to leave the stuff about the head chopping. Leave that. The birds of the air... You know, use your discretion, okay? But (laughs) when we're talking, that's not what we're doing. But this confidence is what we want. This confidence that we're going not to win an argument with people, not to persuade them so that we feel good about ourselves, but in order that the name of the Lord would be made holy. It's our job as the people of God to defend God's honor if we feel like he's being mocked. As the story goes, David takes one stone and only takes him one shot and he hurls his swing around his head and he swings it at Goliath, takes him down and all happens as David's promise, down to the gory details. And following the defeat, King Saul sets David over many other men of war. And it says David went and won many battles. Why would Saul... Send David to lead the men of war. He's so young. 
Does he want him to teach them all how to throw rocks? No. It's because his confidence is the kind of confidence that inspires other men. Inspires whole armies. And so even though he's a boy, even though his tactics worked in one but probably wouldn't work in another battle, his confidence is the thing that inspires the masses. And so Saul gives him armies. And as the story goes, eventually David becomes so successful uh, that he becomes the king the people want and God has anointed David as the king and he eventually becomes the greatest king in Israel's history and Jesus is in the line of King David in the line of the one whose confidence was in God. Now, as we read this, what, we, what we've got to make sure we understand is this distinction between the confidence that many other people, many successful athletes, uh, many successful businessmen have, and the confidence that this young shepherd boy shows. Both groups need confidence. Confidence is important to success no matter what, but the confidence that is most persuasive, at least most persuasive in the ways that we should want it to be persuasive, is the kind of confidence that David had. And the distinction between confidence is in the source of the confidence. Now, no matter what kind of confidence you have, confidence is rooted in faith. David's confidence, as all people's confidence, is rooted in his faith. But the question is, is his faith rooted in himself? Is his faith rooted in his own skill? Is his faith in his training and preparation? Is his faith in his strategy or his analysis of the circumstance? And the answer is no. Instead, David's faith, unlike so many others' confidence or faith, is rooted in his faith in God. So when we walk into a big conversation with confidence like David, we need a confidence that's rooted in the character and the personal presence of the Lord our God. That is the kind of confidence that we need to have when we walk into these sorts of conversations. And when we do, and when we speak with confidence, here's what people will ask themselves, either out loud or in their own head. They'll say, what does this guy know that I don't know? Or how is it that she speaks with this kind of confidence about these topics? This is what people are asking themselves. And herein lies the persuasive nature of confidence. People ask themselves those questions. I don't have that kind of confidence. Where did it come from? So anytime we or anybody else encounters this uncommon courage, it's going to be natural for them to ask these questions. We ask it of Olympic athletes, right? It's what inspires us by them. We like to hear their stories. That's why we love true war stories. We hear of this uncommon confidence. But we need to make sure that our confidence is primarily coming from our relationship with God himself because it's that kind of conversation that is persuasive in the right ways. What I mean by persuasive in the right ways. This is what I mean. Confidence, like I said, can come from many forms 
But if it's not from God, if that's not our primary, the primary reason for our confidence, then when people look at us and ask, where does he get his confidence from? What they're bound to find out sooner or later is that that confidence is actually a form of arrogance, that it reeks of hubris, and that is not the kind of witness we want to make for God. That's not godly confidence. That's human confidence. And that's not the kind of confidence that we should long for, that we should move towards. We want humble confidence. A confidence in God's truth, not in our own arrogance. Now remember, you're asking people to listen to you, or you want them to listen to you, and you want them to believe you, not because you say so, not because you're so great, not because it would be nice of them to do so, not in order to not hurt your feelings. You're not asking them to believe something for its benefits, like going to heaven, or its historical importance for our Western society. This is none of the reasons why we want people to listen to and be persuaded to believe what we believe. We're asking them to consider and hopefully to believe these things because it's true. And because it's the most important news that they've ever received. And so this, my friends, is how we make the shift from why godly confidence is so persuasive to the all-important question of why can I have confidence at all in the things of God? Uh, Before we go into why we can have confidence at all, let me just make a quick note about why we have lost confidence. If you don't feel this, you're rare. So many of us have lost confidence in speaking about the things of God. And I think part of it is due to this overall erosion of confidence in our society. There were so many things in life that we used to be confident about that we're no longer confident about. Things like marriage, democracy, liberty, and justice for all. The church. And our confidence has, over the years, been eroded in these things. And there's plenty of good reasons why that's happened, but I think one of the general reasons for our lack of confidence is the proliferation of the skeptic's voice in our culture. We love the skeptic's voice in our culture, right? These are the people we tend to put in front of the camera, the critics, if you will. These are the people that make for good television. And so the proliferation of the skeptic's voice has really dominated our culture in the last 20, 30 years. And ironically, now listen, this is what's so ironic. The thing that draws us to the skeptic is what? Their confidence. They are the most confident people, and they're confident in their skepticism. But we're drawn to it. We're moved by it. We're persuaded to believe them that there's nothing in the world that we can be confident of. And it's their confidence that draws us into that worldview. But in this skeptic's age that we find ourselves in, the means of subverting the skeptic's voice is the same reason that we can have confidence like David had confidence. And the reason is this. It is true. The gospel of Jesus Christ is true. 
Oz Guinness, in his book, Fool's Talk, says this, Faith in God is true because it is true. Not because we or David or Elijah or Luther defend it successfully. If the Christian faith is true, it is true even if no one believes it. And it is not true if it is false, even if everyone believes it. The truth of, of the faith does not stand or fall with our defense of it. It's true because it's true. And so what I've found to be a fundamental problem as we speak about the things of God is either we have no confidence at all or we pretend as if it's true only for us, only for me. And that's not going to subvert any skepticism if we say either with no confidence or we say it's true for me. If we do conversation in this way, we are, in a sense, denying the truth of it by our very tone. Have you ever had to sell something that you didn't actually think was worthy to be sold? Let's just raise a hand, because this is fun. Anybody had to sell something they did not believe somebody should buy? Okay. I, I used to do, I used to be a CPA, and I worked for a big accounting firm, and they used to send us out on these recruiting trips where we'd have to talk to people and say, man, you should come and work for our firm. And I remember it was such a challenge <laughs> trying to sell this thing that I didn't really think was a great idea. It was not great to work 80-hour weeks. You get paid like $10 an hour. It's hard to sell something that you don't think is actually true or something that you don't think is actually beneficial. But here's the great news. It is true. It is beneficial. We're not having to sell something that's not. Of course no one's going to be moved by the way we speak about God if we're always apologizing for what we're saying. It might go something like this. Well, you know... Uh, it's kind of weird, and, you know, I don't always wish it was this way, but I think it might be this way. At least I think it is. Well, here goes. Uh, did you know God loves you? That's how we talk sometimes, isn't it? The gospel is God's mes message of unrelenting love to humanity, and God doesn't need you to apologize for it. Because it's good news. It's great news. God wants and has gone to the greatest of lengths to restore a relationship with every single human being. It's not a fairy tale. It's true. And so we should be excited to talk about it. We're not selling a lie. We're not selling false hope. We're selling the truth about who God is and what He's done. And our tone should model that. Our tone should model that we believe that it's true. Now, understand that it takes more than just gritting it out to change our tone. You say, Dave, I want to be more confident, but how do I do it? So, let me tell you, I'm, let, let's just very quickly go to something that's important. My phone has died. Okay. 
something that's very important to getting back on track when it comes to having this kind of confidence, to recovering the freedom that confidence brings, okay? Something so important, and what it is, is it's reestablishing what belief actually is, right? Because part of the reason that we do not go with confidence and speak of the things of God is because we have a twisted view of belief. Now, I told you I get frustrated when I hear people speak about their faith, but I'm not, when I hear that, people speaking without confidence, I'm not thinking that they do not believe. I think they believe fully. But they're attaching an unhelpful, uh, I'm going to use a big word, epistemological criteria, that's for you, Matt, criteria to what belief is, okay? Epistemology just means the study of how we know things. So how do we distinguish between justified belief and opinion? This is the work of epistemology, but we use, I think, false criteria when we're talking about the things we believe, and it creates in us this very uneasy lack of confidence. So let's rework the anatomy of belief. So, when we apply the epistemological equivalent to knowing that I have blue eyes, to knowing that certain trees lose their leaves in the fall, if we apply that same criteria to belief in the things of God, we have put ourselves in a tough place. Because, in fact, belief, as we're talking about it, and hang with me, we'll kind of tease this out, belief, ultimately, in the greatest things of the gospel, is not like which trees lose their leaves. It's more like love. Now, how does love work? If you say to me, do you love your wife, Allie? I will say, of course I do. And then if you say to me, tell me why and how you fell in love with Allie, I'm going to struggle. Not because there's not real things that I love about her, not that there are not a chain of events that led to me falling in love with her, but if I'm honest, that's not the reason I love her. Those are attached to it, but they're not the reason. They're not the why, and they're not the how. I can tell you all sorts of specific observable things about her that I like. I like her hair. That's not why I love her. I can tell you about before our second date, I got a phone call, and she tried to cancel on me. I said, why? Because my mom's been in a horseback riding accident, and so I met her at the hospital, and I spent the night at the hospital just to help her out. That's part of the chain of events, but that's not how I fell in love with her. I just love her, (laughs) and it happened. And this is why if you're not yet married and you want to be married, you hate it when married people say, you'll just know. Yeah, that's the worst. I remember people said it to me. I was like, get out of my face right now (laughs) and do not ever talk to me again. I hated that. You'll just know. The problem is, it's true. 
You just know, but you can't explain it. And if I tell you I can't explain it, why or how, in the way you want me to, you'd be a fool to deny that it's actually true, that it's justifiable, that it's valid. I love my wife. Or if you said something like this to me, Dave, you might not want to be so confident in your love for Allie because, you know, of all those things you told me, the things you like about her and the chain of events, I know a hundred other girls who have all those same qualities, and I'm sure the chain of events could go pretty much the same, so how do you know that you've married the right girl? I'd say, get out of my face. (laughs) We intuitively know that this is a false line of reasoning, that love does not work that way, that love is not a scientific formula, that its origins are not immediately evident, and you can't duplicate it in a laboratory. But it's love, and it's real, and it's the greatest thing in the world. Belief is like this, too. We know that we believe, but it can be difficult to explain exactly why and exactly how we became confident that this is true. Yet we can still be confident We don't don't feel like you need to deny the fact that you're confident that it's true. That does not mean you never have doubt. That does not mean that you never have hard questions. It just means something deep inside of me, I know that this is true. I know that Jesus died for my sins. I know it. I believe it. I'm confident. This is a gift. The gift of faith that God has given you. It's okay to be confident. Now, having said that, I'm not saying that faith is best when it's blind. I'm not saying that the bigger the leap of faith, the better. That is not true either. In fact, faith requires us to have our eyes wide open, to see the world as it actually is, to be fair and honest in everything, including myself, including my own sin, including my rebellion against God. Faith requires eyes wide open. And so, it also requires us to move as far as possible to make that leap become more of a step of faith. Okay? There are thousands upon thousands of pieces of evidence where we can verify the truth of the propositions of the Christian faith. We can verify that Jesus lived, that He died on a Roman cross, And even many non-Christian historians will affirm that there is evidence that Jesus rose from the grave. They just can't explain how or why. But yet, many who believe what I've just said, which I call verifiable evidence, do not believe what I'll call personal evidence. Personal evidence like that Jesus was the Son of God. And that Jesus died for my sin. And that Jesus, through the resurrection, makes a way for me to bodily rise from the dead in a life to come with God in the new heavens and new earth. This is personal evidence. And because believing in verifiable evidence is different than belief in personal evidence, we must recognize 
that different types of belief are different. Saving belief doesn't stop at verifiable evidence. Saving belief moves past it to uh, personal evidence. Don't let the scientific bias in 2016 sort of trick you into thinking that that's not allowed, that you cannot have confidence in this second kind of belief. Because just as in the world of science, we have confidence in certain things because we have confidence in the one who tells us. This happens in science, and this happens in gospel belief. This is personal evidence. Scientists are borrowing all the time from scientists that came before them, scientists in other fields. They're all borrowing the work of each other to conduct their own experiments and come up with their own facts and theories, and they've got no problem trusting personal evidence. They don't rework everything that's ever been worked, okay? No one starts in a vacuum and just builds from the ground up the next theory, the next theory of physics, the next theory of mathematics, whatever you want to do. That is not. They're using personal evidence. So everybody's doing this. In the same way, God himself has proven to us historically throughout the ages that he is trustworthy. He's proved it to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. To King David, he's proved it. To all the people of Israel and down through time until Jesus, until the New Testament church and throughout the last 2,000 years for us. And so when he tells us something that is God, something that is not reproducible in a lab, it is not foolish to be confident in him. It is not foolish to be confident in what he's told us. It is wise because of all the verifiable evidence, because of all the historical evidence, because he is God and he is trustworthy. Let me give you a quick example of how this works, and no one can deny this. <laughs> if my doctor tells me that I have cancer, I do not have cancer, so don't wig out. Anyhow, if I do, Blaine will step in. This guy's great. You'll love him. But if he tells me I have cancer, and he tells me I need to start chemotherapy, I, of course, am going to want to see the lab results, Okay? And he's going to bring me the lab results. And he's going to show them to me. And I'm going to look at them. And to be perfectly honest, I'm going to have no idea what that means. Except for what he tells me that it means. Okay? And I'm going to believe him. Even though I can't read it for myself. I'm going to believe him because he's my doctor. And because I'm in a lot of pain. And it makes a lot of sense of my pain that I've got a tumor. Even though I don't know the science, even though I did not go to med school, I trust the doctor's interpretation of my scans, and I have confidence in his expertise and training, and so I take his advice for the course of action that he thinks best to fix the problem. Now, when God, who is the creator of all, tells me that the sin of humanity has created a crack in the fabric of this world and that it is sin that must be removed in order to put things back the way that they're meant to be, to fix the crack, and that He has done this, that we can't do it ourselves, but He has done this by sending His Son to be our substitutionary sacrifice, the perfect Savior, 
and that His death on the cross pays the penalty for my sin, that His name was Jesus, He was God incarnate, I have to ask, can I trust Him? Can I have confidence that He's told me this? I cannot verify this. I was not there at the creation of the world. I did not meet any sinless human beings. No one was there, by the way. Just if anybody tells you they were, they weren't. Nobody was there. Nobody has a video of this. Nobody, myself included, I did not get to walk with the first human beings on earth. I did not know if their name was Adam or Eve. I know this because God told me this. By the way, nobody else was there either. And I can't understand why the world is as it is, why it seems to have a tumor, why it's painful, why it hurts, why everybody seems to have this category called evil, but I feel its effects, I know that it's there, I know that something's not right in my own life, in the world around me. But God tells me why. So I have a choice. Do I either believe him? What he says was the cause, what he says is the remedy, or do I believe someone else? Now remember, nobody knows the true problem or the true remedy through verifiable evidence. Everyone knows it only through faith. Either faith in science and sociology and psychology or faith in the Creator God. Now, what do I do? Let me look at his credentials. Is he trustworthy? Has he been showing and proving himself for thousands of years to be the one true Creator God of the universe? Has he proven himself? Has he showed himself? Has he explained himself to be a God of mercy, grace, but also justice and holiness? I can look at the MRI of the world and I can see that something's wrong. And it makes sense when he talks about it as sin, both personal and corporate sin, and how it affects us. I can see how that works. But I can only believe in a personal way that his interpretation of the crack and the solution is right. And I choose to trust his transcendent wisdom. That's the kind of faith that's worthy to be confident in. Don't let people tell you otherwise. It's true. That's why we walk into conversation speaking as if it is. Now, there are going to be many things that shake your confidence. That's okay. Here's three things that shake my confidence more than anything. The first is sin. Probably some of you are also struggling with sin. And what I found is what I'm wrestling with sin, and when I lose, particularly when I lose to sin, I'm never less confident. And it's, it's almost, I mean, the correlation is uncanny about how when I am caught in sin, my confidence decreases. Have you experienced this? The other thing that shakes my confidence is death. 
I went to a close childhood friend's, uh, to his mother's funeral this week. And she was the sweetest lady ever. And she died of cancer. And it shook me. Why would God allow this to happen to this person? Death shakes us. Now, when sin and death shake us, here's the other interesting piece. If we don't give in and let it crush us, it actually builds our confidence. Because when I sin and I feel that separation from God, it actually reinforces the fact that sin is real, that God is real, and that He's holy, and that it requires me to become more like Him to feel His presence and to come into His courts. So sin actually becomes a thing. Even though it shakes me, it can become a thing that builds me up when I realize how true God's truth actually is. But death is the same way. I was shaken this week, but as I'm sitting at this funeral, and many of the people, most of the people there, would not consider themselves Christians, when they are mourning death, when they are saying, this is not okay, this is not right, this is not how it should be, when every human being that's ever lived has died, that makes you wonder, doesn't it? Maybe death isn't a part of God's original design if everybody feels that it's so absurd. You see how it shook me, but then it reminds me that it's true. And the last thing is ignorance. So often, we find ourselves ignorant to the truths of God, and it keeps us from being confident when we speak about Him. Here's what you do. Start reading. Read the Word of God. Be in the Word of God. Read about God. When you lack confidence because of ignorance, get into His Word, and what you realize is that it's true in a more transcendent way than you ever could. I just read this week, preparing to go to my friend's funeral, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Do you know how profoundly transcendent that truth is? Because of the cross of Christ? We do not get hit by death, but only its shadow. And it's the greatest truth there ever was. So we need to fight back ignorance if it's keeping us from confidence. We must learn then to be accountable for our confidence. God does not want us to be confident based on false premises. He does not want us to be confident through deception or ignorance, like I said. He doesn't want us to pick the right doctor by accident. He doesn't want us to pick a bad doctor who might prescribe a good thing that helps us. He doesn't want us to not pick any doctor at all and then, well, we got better. I guess I'll do that again. That is not what God wants. He wants us to be accountable for our confidence, which means, again, if we were going to a doctor, what would we do? We'd read up on the doctor. We'd Google search his name. We'd read reviews. We'd talk to those who have been treated by him in the past. Did I say that I'd read up on the doc, that I'd see the work that he's done? 
and maybe even look at other doctors for a point of comparison. So here's what you do in real life. You read up on God's track record. You read the Bible. You go to church. You look at the history of the church. You get referrals, which means you talk to real Christians, not just those people who call themselves Christians, but those who are really living it out. Then you read the fine print of the promises that God makes. Does He promise no pain, no suffering? That He'll make you financially wealthy beyond your wildest dreams if you just worship Him? No. Read the fine print. He doesn't even tell you that He'll heal you from cancer. He tells you that He's with you in the valley of the shadow of death. And then schedule an appointment. Schedule an appointment with God. Start praying. Spend a few months in church. Get into a fellowship group. You've got to schedule an appointment. You've got to see what this doctor's all about. Are the rumors true of his power and his presence? And then when somebody in a conversation holds you accountable for the confidence that you have, you know what you say to them? Thanks. Thanks for holding me accountable. You're right. I don't have that answer. Maybe I'm going to go find it. And then you turn around and you do the exact same thing. Because we're not the only ones that have to be accountable for our confidence. You're going to run into people who are very confident in what they believe, of what they say is true. Hold them accountable. Why are you confident that you have the truth? Hold others accountable. And what you begin to find is that many people, though they have confidence, can't answer the whys, can't answer the hows, and they can't even tell you where they got that idea. It's just there. Hold yourself accountable for your confidence. Hold others accountable. And I promise you, your conversations will begin to be full and rich. Not easy, but something will happen. And finally, Jesus himself models this kind of confidence. Jesus, again, as in all things, is the model that we look to. When Jesus put on human flesh, it means that he put on our limited view of time, our limited view of the world, and so just like us, his confidence is not rooted in the fact that he was, he's God and he can just see how it all will work out. It's rooted in his trust and faith in God the Father. And so we look to him and how he does confidence and how he is willing to go to the cross, not knowing in the way we think he might have known that three days later God would raise him from the dead, but trusting what God the Father told him would happen That's the kind of confidence that Jesus had. Jesus perfectly trusted God in a human way because he was fully human. The things that God the Father revealed to him and he knew that God the Father, he knew him personally. He was with him. God the Father, God the Son, and the Spirit are one but three persons. And so it was the personal evidence that gave Jesus the confidence even to go to the cross and die. For our sin. God hasn't told us the plan in detail for each of our lives, but He has told us the path. And we must be confident in that. He said, God so loved the world that He gave His Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you have confidence in that? And he says, turn from your sin and believe in Jesus and put your confidence fully in my son. That's the confidence we want to take into every conversation we have.
Let's pray.